possess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I once heard someone tell the story about uh, him taking his son to their neighbor's house and his neighbor had a giant dog. So when they approached the front door of the house, uh, his son was kind of like on eye level of the dog. And, but then the dad says, oh, son, I forgot something in the car. Would you go grab it for me? And so he sort of runs to the car. And then uh, when, he, when he does, the dog chases out after him behind him. And so the neighbor yells out to the son saying, hey, it's probably not a good idea to run away from the dog. He doesn't like it when people run away from him. Captures a little bit of what God wants his people to take away from these chapters. There is no need to fear if you come to God and stay with him, but you should fear running away from him. So I think the main point of Deuteronomy 12 and 13 is this. In order to continue to love, enjoy, and worship God, you will need to stay vigilant against the temptation to worship other things besides him and thus run away from him. Stay vigilant, stay ready against the temptations to worship other things besides him and run away from him. So chapter 12 is going to address temptations to run away from God, temptations that come from outside of us, And chapter 13 is going to address temptations that come from inside of us, even inside the people of God. So it's my prayer that as a result of our time, you'll be able to recognize these temptations. You'll be able to know how to address them. And you'll know why God is so worth staying close to. So let's start with chapter 12 with temptations that come outside of us. Now we've taken a week off of Deuteronomy, so I wanna bring ourselves up to speed. Remember that Deuteronomy is a series of speeches from Moses. It's quite literally his last words. These speeches are addressed to a new generation of God's people, those who come after the generation that God freed from Egypt. And then the generation that he sustained in the wilderness, the generation that got to the edge of the promised land and then refused to go in. And so then they died out in the wilderness over the course of 40 years. God's speaking to people that come after that generation. And now, once again, they're on the cusp of the promised land, and God is urging them to move forward and go in. Now, today we're in a new section of Deuteronomy. I wanted to cover some ground before I shared with you the book's larger structure. I'm helped by Dr. Jim Hamilton, professor of Old Testament at Southern Seminary. One, thing you, one way you can think of the book of Deuteronomy is to think of it like a picture frame. So I included it on the back of your bulletin. Um, so you can think of the whole book as a picture frame. The whole book is 34 chapters. And so the frame itself, kind of that outer edge, 
The frame itself are the opening and closing chapters. So we saw how in chapters one through three, it was a look backwards. Chapters 31 through 34 will be a look forward. And then the inner frame, call this kind of the mat of the picture frames. Uh, This is all motivations to keep the covenant and follow God's ways. So chapters four through 11, we saw they, they wanna persuade God's people that God has their good in mind when he gives them their, these instructions. And chapters 27 through 30 will be more motivations. Uh, these will contain blessings for keeping the covenant and curses for breaking it. And then the very heart of the frame, you see the actual picture itself, are chapters 12 through 26. We'll call these covenant stipulations. In other words, this is what God is actually calling them to do, how God is calling them to live. And actually, these chapters largely follow the Ten Commandments. They more or less give case law about each of the Ten Commandments or real-life examples of what it looks like for them to live out the Ten Commandments. And so in chapter 12, we start to get more specific about what God's calling them to do. And specifically, these two chapters focus mainly on ways they are to live out the first two of the Ten Commandments. That is, have no other gods before Yahweh and don't make any idols. Now, like we said, chapter 12 focuses mainly on temptations that will come outside of themselves, temptations that they'll encounter when they settle in the promised land. And these temptations in this chapter revolve around places that are called high places. We saw them earlier in the book of 2 Kings. This is where those who lived in the promised land previously uh, used to worship their gods. These would be different shrines on mountains and hills and under trees scattered throughout the land of Canaan. Now, like a good shepherd, God sees danger ahead and he seeks to steer his sheep away from that danger. In chapter 12, he tells his people, you are going to see these high places and you're going to be tempted. You'll be tempted to worship me according to the world's ways. You'll be tempted to worship me according to your own ways. And you'll be tempted to worship me according to your own convenience. I want to show you those three temptations. The first temptation, they will be tempted to worship God according to the world's ways. So go back to the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 12. They're going to see all these different places where the nations worshiped their so-called gods. And the warning comes in verse 4, very clearly. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Now, do you see the heart of the issue here? It's not what they're worshiping or who they're worshiping. They're still seeking to worship the one true God. The heart of the issue is how they're worshiping. You might say, well, Steve, hold on a second. What's the big deal about that? They're still worshiping God after all. Why not take the best ideas from the world and apply it to the worship of God? After all, are we going to pretend that we have the corner on the market of all the good ideas out there? Well, this can lead us into a bigger discussion. Yes, in God's grace that he commonly gives to all people, there is wisdom to be had out in the world. I mean, you learn music, you learn meteorology, you learn math from God's wisdom that he's given to those in the world. But here we're not talking about that. We're talking about how you know and worship God. That's what we're talking about. When it comes to this, where are you going to start? How to worship and know God, where are you gonna start? Will you start with what seems to work in the world? Or will you start with what God says in his word? When it comes to knowing and worshiping God, where are you gonna start, with the world or with the word? Oh, this affects how we do church. This affects how you do your individual Christian life. 
Thinking about how we do church, this discussion uh, touches on what theologians down through the centuries have called the regulative principle. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but if it sounds very academic to you, just listen for the word regulate in there. At its most basic level, the regulative principle acknowledges that God's word regulates all of our lives, including how we worship him. So it doesn't just matter that we worship God, it also matters how we worship God. And you know, that actually informs how we plan this time together Sunday by Sunday when we gather as a church to worship the Lord. We are not starting with what seems to work well in the world. We are starting with what does God say in his word? That's gonna make a big difference. Now, let me clarify a little bit. God does, God's word doesn't tell us how to worship him in every little specific detail. As one author helpfully writes, God's word doesn't say you guys need to gather at 1045 instead of 1030. It doesn't tell us whether to sit or stand for songs or readings. It doesn't tell us what key to sing in. Maybe Jonathan might be helped if it did give you uh, extra uh, clarification on that, right? But God's word does tell us the main elements of our worship when we gather together as a church. It tells us the main elements. As others have recognized, when we gather together as a church to worship the Lord, we are to read the word, we are to pray the word, we are to preach the word, we are to sing the word, and we are to see the word depicted in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Read the word, pray the word, preach the word, sing the word, see the word. Now, yes, there's liberty in how to go about each of those elements, but that should be our baseline. That's what the word of God says. Now, when it comes to knowing and worshiping God as a church, imagine if we started with what seems to work in the world rather than with what God says in his word. Imagine if we started with what works in the world. Where would we end up? Well, we'd probably end up in a place that, where we try to look like the world in order to win the world. You know, a common critique of many church services in, in America and the modern West is that a lot of church services look like Coldplay and a TED Talk. That's not the picture the Bible gives about what makes us compelling in the world's eyes. No, what makes us compelling isn't that we're so much like the world. It's actually that we're so much different than the world. In fact, that's the same how it worked for Israel. Just go back to Deuteronomy 4, verse 6. For instance, the church can't do entertainment better than the world. Maybe the Super Bowl halftime show proved that. But the church can love better than the world can't do entertainment better than the world, but, but you know, we can love better than the world. And didn't Jesus say that's how people will know we're his followers, not by how well we entertain them, but by how well we love them. When it comes to knowing and worshiping God, where are you going to start? With the world or with the word? It affects how we do church. It affects your own individual Christian life. So you see, the problem isn't that you're in the world. The problem is that the world is in you. There's an old story that goes how one fish approached two other fish one day. He says, uh, morning, boys. How's the water today? The two fish look back at him and say, what the heck is water? When you live in a place, the lifestyles and the values and even the idols become as common to you as water is to fish. That's why Romans 12, 2 tells you not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind 
So let me put it at street level for you. Uh, so when you stroll through the shopping mall, or when you browse the internet, or when you watch cable news, there are narratives, there are lifestyles, there are even idols in all of those things. And if you're not renewing your mind by God's word, these will influence you away from God, not toward him, just like the high places did. We saw this play out in the book of 2 Kings, right? There's the string of kings, Jehoash, Amaziah, Azariah. Each of them are depicted as good kings, but it says they didn't remove the high places. And because of that, God's people were led astray from him generation after generation. So God's people are going to live in the promised land, but when they get there, they're going to get temptations that come outside of themselves. They're going to see these high places, and they will be tempted to worship the Lord according to the world's ways. Second temptation, they will be tempted to worship according to their own ways. Look at chapter 12, verse 8. It says, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. You know, over the last hundred years or so, there's been a slow shift away from external authority to internal authority. A slow shift away from saying that um, now people say nothing outside of me, nothing external from me is going to be in charge of me. Authority is internal. People say, I'm in charge of me. What I feel, what I think determines who I am and determines what is true. There are just so many problems with this because how you think is so much determined by what's outside of you. And not only that, you and I are just a jumble of contradictions. If you're gonna have internal authority, you know, I just think of me. I wanna drink a milkshake, Oreo milkshake from Chick-fil-A every day and I wanna be physically fit. <laughs> I need something outside of me to tell me what's better. You see internal authority everywhere. You hear it in Frank Sinatra singing My Way. You see it in the movie Ricky Bobby praying to baby Jesus because he likes the baby Jesus the best. You see it in the person who says, I feel like I worship God best on a Sunday by going for a hike. But internal authority isn't just a modern phenomenon. It's an ancient condition. And you see it in Deuteronomy as well. You might recognize this phrase, everyone did whatever is right in their own eyes. Any other book that comes up in, you know, judges, that's right. And when it comes up in judges over and over again, it leads to destruction and chaos over and over again. It says Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man and its end is death. My friend, if you're not a Christian, Jesus doesn't call you to be true to yourself and affirm your own authority. Jesus isn't the divine butler who exists to rubber stamp whatever you say will make you happy. No, Jesus instead calls you to deny yourself and follow him, submitting to his authority. He is the rightful king who was risen from the dead and given all authority in heaven and earth. But let me tell you, friend, his authority is a life-giving one, not a life-taking one, because he's the one who came down to rescue you from the destruction coming your way by being destroyed himself. He lived the life you should have lived, always submitting to God's right authority. And yet he died the death you deserved. And he rose again. Oh, my friend, the life that you long for won't be found by looking within yourself. It will be found by looking to him. God's people are going to enter the promised land and they're going to encounter places where the people who used to live there worshiped their so-called gods and they'll be tempted. 
They'll be tempted to worship God according to the world's ways. They'll be tempted to worship God according to their own ways. And they'll be tempted, thirdly, to worship God according to their own convenience. Now, chapter 12 talks a lot about one of my favorite subjects, and that is eating meat. Uh, and so it seems kind of random. It sounds like where God tells them where they should eat meat and where they can't eat meat. And it can sound like God's version of green eggs and ham. Like, will you eat meat with a fox or in a box or in a house or with a mouse? But they're actually very meaningful instructions for how to worship God. You see, God called them to worship him through various animal and food sacrifices. This is how they would express thanksgiving to God. This is how God would make atonement for what they, the sin they've done against him. God tells them um, that all these sacrifices, they are to offer them only in one place that he told them. And eventually that would be the temple in Jerusalem. So what's the connection with the high places? What, what's the temptation? I, I, I think it's this. When they see the high places all scattered throughout the land of Canaan, they might end up thinking, hey, why would I travel all these hundreds of miles to go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice when I got a high place two blocks from me? Why would I do that? Now God clarifies, he says, I'm not keeping you from eating anywhere. I'm keeping you from sacrificing anywhere. But it brings us to our starting point again for worshiping God. Where are we gonna start? When it comes to worshiping God, are you gonna start? Is your highest priority going to be your convenience? Or for worshiping God, is your highest priority going to be your obedience? What will be your highest priority? Your convenience or your obedience? Boy, what a right here for the American church. <laughs> it's so easy for us to adopt a consumer mindset that the customer is always right. And the church must be convenient for me and fit my preferences. I gotta have the right service time that works just for me. I gotta have the right style that works for me. You know, I'm just gonna try to get spicy with you for a second, so if you'll permit me. Um, it might be a larger topic for a different day. But this is among the reasons why I'm hesitant about having multiple gatherings for worship on a Sunday. And among the other reasons that I think it, it can confuse church as an event you attend rather than a family you would gather with. Now, I'm not talking about the prayer service we have in the evenings. I'm talking about giving, giving people multiple options and telling them to pick which one they want to go to. Now, you might disagree with me on this. That I'm not going to hold this as firmly as Jesus rose from the dead, okay? So don't, don't, mis don't mishear me. Consider one pastor's testimony, though. He said, years ago, we outgrew our space, and so we added a second service and then a third. The result was that I was subtly teaching my people that their church provided options for them that they could select for what suited them on that day. So up too late on a Saturday night, no problem. Pick the late service. Got a lot to do on a Sunday, no problem. Hit the early service. It's not that I ever said that, but that is what happened. In fact, over time, the people who came to the early service were so committed to the convenience of that time that when we were able to all meet together at one time and one place, they left. God's people will settle in the promised land and encounter pagan places of worship. And God tells them straight up, you guys will be tempted to worship me according to the world's ways, according to your own ways, and even according to your own convenience. Instead of any of that, God says you're to worship me according to my ways. Look back at chapter 12, verse five. It says, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God chose out of all your tribes 
to put his name and make his habitation. Now, what is that place? God had already taken up residence among his people in the tabernacle. Now, they had been a people on the move, but soon they will settle down in a land permanently. And soon this tabernacle, the tent where God specially dwelt among them and where God met man on earth will become the temple in Jerusalem. And so the question becomes, how do we apply Deuteronomy 12.5 to ourselves? Where is the place that God specially dwells on earth? Where is the place we need to go in order to meet God? Well, it's not so much a place as it is a person. When Jesus was at the temple in Jerusalem, later in the Bible, in John chapter 2, he cleansed the temple of corruption and the temple officials challenged him. They said, what sign will you do that shows you that you have the right to do this? Jesus responds, tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up. They're all confused. But John 2.21 says that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, he was the ultimate way God came down to earth to meet man. And yet he was destroyed. He was killed in our place. And he was raised from the dead to be, a corner, to be the cornerstone of the new temple of God. So that now Ephesians 2.22 says that all who come to Jesus by faith are the dwelling place of God on earth. So to meet God on earth, we don't go to a place. We go to a person, Jesus. And God now specially dwells in all the people who believe in that person, Jesus. So you follow Deuteronomy 12.5, not by worshiping God in Jerusalem, but by worshiping God alongside others who believe in the Savior Jesus. Now, I'm looking back at all of chapter 5 before we move to chapter 13. All these instructions about how God wants to be worshipped. Are all these instructions just because God is really picky? All these instructions, you got to worship me in this way. Is it just because God is high maintenance? You know, he likes things just a certain way. and We'll, we'll just have to uh, uh, oblige him. No, I don't think so. I think God is guarding something. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. Look where he wants to lead them. Chapter 12, verse 7, There you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households. He's leading them to joyful feasting before them, before him. Isn't this what God does for us even more so through Jesus? Every week, the Lord's Supper reminds us that God has brought his former enemies to his table, that he has paid for their sin by giving up his only son. And even as we feast at this table, it previews that one day we will feast with him forever in his kingdom. So when you read the particular instructions of chapter 12, all the warnings it contains, remember this. The one you carefully follow and worship, even amidst all the temptations around you, is the same one who leads you to everlasting joy in him. So we're saying that as they get into the promised land, there are going to be endless pathways that will want to get them to forsake leaving God, to leave God behind. And that's not a small deal. They need to stay ready, stay vigilant against them. So we talked in chapter 12 about temptations that are outside of them. And chapter 13 talks about temptations that are inside of them, in themselves, even among their own people. Now, before I get into specifics, I want to make sure that this is a category for you. That your temptation isn't just on the things that happened around you. Your temptation also comes from what happens in you. Chapter 13 is going to give us three different scenarios, and they all have something in common. You look at chapter 13, verse 1. 
It says, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you. Chapter 13, verse 6. Your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend. Chapter 13, verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, these are temptations arising from among them, not outside of them. Now, I don't think Moses is trying to make his people paranoid. I don't think Moses is sitting everybody down and say, all right, everybody turn to the person to their right and to their left. One of you is going to try to get to forsake God for one another. I don't think Moses wants to make his people paranoid. I think he wants to make God's people prepared. He doesn't want them to be suspicious, but neither does he want them to be gullible. He wants them to be discerning. Now, having just talked about the world's problems in chapter 12, it's like Moses is now telling them, guys, if you focus only on what's wrong with the world, you're going to forget to examine yourselves. You can't blame everything on what happens outside of you. In this case, you actually do need to look within. James 1.14 says, each man is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. The same Apostle Paul who wrote, do not be conformed to this world, is the same one who said in Acts 20 to the, to the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So in chapter 13, we get scenarios of temptation, not from outside of them, but that arises from inside of them. We get three different scenarios of people who want to entice the Lord's people away from worshiping him in order to serve other gods. Now, in each of these three scenarios, I want to show you what's tempting about it and what they were to do about it. So scenario one is from chapter 13, verse one through verse five. It's that first paragraph. Verse one through five, this temptation comes from a so-called prophet or a dreamer of dreams. Now, notice in verse two, this guy, he's trying to get the people to go after other gods. There's nothing subtle about that. But what would make his message so tempting? What would make such a brash message so tempting? Well, that's at the beginning of verse two. Notice it says, the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. It works. And so they might think, what, this guy seems legit. Maybe he's worth listening to. Well, they should remember what their parents saw in, in Egypt. Even Pharaoh's own magicians could counterfeit several of the plagues. Or later in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 8, there's Simon the magician. It says he amazed the people of Samaria, but he did that all before he believed the truth of the gospel. Or even for us now, there might be false preachers who wave their hand and people fall over. But that doesn't mean you should listen to them. And you know, false teachers aren't always so obvious. Often what leaves you impressed by them isn't the signs and wonders they do. Often what leaves you impressed by them is their words and their wisdom. It's what happened to the Christians in Corinth, as 1 Corinthians describes. I think for us, brothers and sisters, it's just the internet has no shortage of self-proclaimed gurus and influencers who are really convincing just because they have this persona of confidence and they know how to put together a polished video. Be careful, friends. So in this scenario with these false prophets, this dreamer of dreams who wants to entice them away from the Lord, what are they to do? 
Well, verse three, it says they're not to listen to him. And verse five very starkly says they are to put this man to death. Well, I imagine this stands out to you as, as much as it does for me. So we should say a couple things about it. We should say one, like we've noticed before, this command is uniquely for this time, this people, and this stage of God's plan. Remember, God's people are a single nation ruled directly by him. And that means they're all in this together. So if they let this man continue, the whole nation would be on the hook. So either it's this guy or everybody else. And so we should say in light of chapter 13, verse five, well, this command to put this man to death is, isn't for us in that way. We haven't left this behind entirely. You know, the apostle Paul actually quotes the end of Deuteronomy 13, five in 1 Corinthians five, when he says, purge the evil from your midst. There, he's applying it to the context of church discipline. There, there's a a man's pattern of life that contradicts his claim to believe and follow Jesus. And so when that happens, the church says, hey, we can no longer affirm that you believe and follow Jesus. And until you turn from it, you are not officially part of the church community. Even for us, still, sin remains a poison that we need to get out of our system. It's not good for you to ignore it. As it's been famously said by John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Chapter 13, five might stand out to us. It might stand out to us not just because we have this moral superiority over this because we finally figured it out. It might stand out to us because of our moral apathy. One writer says that we respond to something like idolatrous rebellion, not with outrage, but with a shrug. In other words, sin might not be a big deal to you because God isn't a big deal to you. You won't understand how bad sin is until you understand how good God is. They'll face temptations not just from outside of themselves, but inside of themselves. And so we get three scenarios of it. Second scenario spans from verse 6 to verse 11. That's second paragraph. This time, it's not a dreamer. It's not a prophet who wants to get them to go after their gods. It's actually their own family member. What would make this so tempting? Well, it's not how impressive the person is. It's how emotionally tied the person is to you. You I'm not the first to observe that for a lot of Christians, blood runs thicker than their theology. Here's what I mean by that. that. Emotional arguments are often stronger than intellectual arguments. Classic example, God's good design for human sexuality as revealed in the Bible. People usually stop believing that, not when they've been argued out of it, but when a family member makes a new lifestyle decision. That's what emotional arguments are stronger than intellectual ones. These people know the truth, but their blood runs thicker than their theology. So in this scenario, when a family member wants to get them to forsake God and pursue other ones, what are they to do? Well, chapter 13, verse 8, it says they're not to yield to him or not to listen to him. And then as you continue, they too shall be put to death. They are not exempt from this. Again, we could say all that we just said about the first scenario. But before you look down on this, I want you to remember Jesus's words in Matthew 10, 37. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Now, just to be clear, neither Deuteronomy nor Jesus is telling you not to love your family. It's telling you that your deepest allegiance, your deepest loyalty isn't first to your family, it's first to your God. Three scenarios, temptations inside themselves. Last one spans from from verse 12 through 18. And this time it's a group of people who have enticed an entire city to forsake the Lord and worship idols. Now, what makes this so tempting? It's not how impressive an individual is. It's not an emotional tie. I think what makes this tempting is that it's always tempting to go along with the crowd. It's always tempting to be swayed by popular opinion. Brother, sister, I hope I don't have to tell you that popular opinion is a really bad way to shape what you believe about God. Ligonier Ministries does a state of theology survey every two years. Uh, Their most recent one came out in 2022. Uh, It found that 56% of those who say they're evangelicals, 56% agree that God accepts worship of all religions. 43% agree that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 38% agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not objective truth. This is from those who are supposedly in the church. So what are they to do if an entire city goes after another God? Well, verse 14 says they're first to enact due process. This is a situation that's further removed from them. They need to do careful investigation. I think that's a good word for uh, us as a church in, in our day, in a world that loves controversies, especially controversies in the church. It's good for us to slow down and investigate. But if it does prove true, God says this city gets the same punishment as the first two scenarios. And I think it's really interesting that even though this city would be in Israel, this city is to receive the same treatment as the Canaanite pagan cities. So I think this tells you that the issue wasn't ethnic identity. The issue is that this city is withholding worship from God that God alone deserves. That's the issue. And it reminds you that just because you look like the people of God on the outside does not mean that you are part of the people of God on the inside. And so Romans 9 verse 6 says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. To put it in our terms, you're not automatically a Christian just because your mom and dad were Christians. You don't become a Christian by physical birth. You become one by new birth. When you actually believe that Jesus is Lord, the son of God who lived and died in your place and rose again. So God's people are gonna encounter temptations that arise from inside of themselves. And God tells them, guys, don't judge by what you see Don't judge by what you feel. Don't judge by what's popular. Judge by what's true. Judge by the word. Deuteronomy 12, 32 is a guidepost for all of chapter 13. It says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Judge by the word. Now, why are they to be so careful about temptations to forsake God and worship other gods? Well, we should be clear. The reason you loathe sin is because you love God. That's the ultimate reason. Chapter 13, verse three tells you that God may permit these types of scenarios in order to test your love for them. 
And like teachers don't give students their tests in order for them to fail. At least good teachers don't do that. Teachers give tests so that their students will grow and improve. And so through these scenarios, though though they might be hard, God could grow their love for him so that their love for him is what's most true about him. Friend, what is most true about you? Is it your love for God? God is worthy of that kind of love because he first loved you. That's what verse five says, that rebellion against God is so bad because God is so good. He saved them from Egypt. And how much more have you and I seen the goodness of God in saving us from our sin through his son? We think about how Jesus relates to Deuteronomy 13. You think, yeah, Jesus really did do signs and wonders. And yet he was rejected even by his own family. He was put to death. He was treated like that city that rejected God. But it wasn't for his rebellion against God. No, Jesus faced temptation and remained faithful. It wasn't for his rebellion against God that he was treated that way. It was for all those who would turn from their sin and trust in him. He took the treatment you deserve so that you can receive the treatment he deserves. Oh, friends, there are endless temptations to leave God behind. But why would you want to leave a God who loves like that? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you that you are love. You are the fountain, the source of love. Would you, would you remind us of this and, and teach us that there is life in no one else besides you? Would you make our hearts most satisfied with you so that we would cling to you and stay close to you? We pray that for anyone here that might be seeking life by, through their own authority, would see the one who gave up his life and now has all authority and that they would have life in his name by believing in him, the Lord Jesus. Would, each one of us, would you cause each one of us, Lord, to cling to him even through the temptations that we face in this world to forsake you? Help us to be vigilant. Hold on to us so that we can hold on to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.